0: Welcome to SLP Learning Series, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech-language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guests who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for .1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Welcome to season seven, telepractice. It's not just screen time.
1: All right, welcome to the podcast mini-series, Telepractice. It's not just screen time, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Thanks for joining us for the second episode of our six-part mini-series, Exploring a Multidisciplinary Team Approach via Telepractice. This audio course is offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. I'm your host, Karine hartunian Kukayan. I've been a speech-language pathologist for over two decades and working in telepractice for the past 12 years serving in both special education and healthcare. As a reminder, if your state license requires CEUs, be sure to complete all course modules, including the one that says quiz before the end of today on your speechtherapypd.com account. Now here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Karine Hartunian-Koukian is the host of this podcast and receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and she is also currently the Clinical Program Director at SLP Tele. Her non-financial disclosures are that she is the current SIG-18 Associate Coordinator for ASHA. Trisha Castellan receives an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this episode and receives a salary from the Stepping Stones group. She does not have any non-financial disclosures. And now here's a little bit about our guest today. Trisha is an occupational therapist with 20 years of experience, primarily in pediatrics. Trisha began her telepractice journey in 2015 as a skeptical but optimistic clinician. After learning the skills required to be a telepractitioner, she found her niche. She now works for the Stepping Stones group and is on the telepractice team supporting clinical managers and districts across the country. She presented at the American Occupational Therapy Association's National Conference in 2020 on telepractice. She's also presented at conferences for state occupational therapy organizations and university occupational therapy programs throughout the United States. Welcome, Tricia. All right. And now I did want to start with just outlining today's learner outcomes By the end of the course, participants will be able to name a few benefits and limitations of a multidisciplinary approach in telepractice, identify three key components of a multidisciplinary session, and name two resources you can utilize in your treatment sessions. Awesome. So, I'd love to hear Trish if you can tell us about your journey as an OT and how did you become an OT and how did you come to telepractice? Awesome. Well, so excited to be here. Thanks for having me and getting to to chat with
2: you a little bit today. I've always been around therapists. My younger sister was. Born with part of her brain didn't grow. So she was blind, quadriplegic, cerebral palsy, cystic fibrosis, kind of one of those you name it, she had it kind of thing. So I always went to OT, PT, everything that she got with her. She ended up in a, a private school in Massachusetts as well. So it's just sort of part of my life. So I knew very early on that I wanted to go to school and become an OT, which I feel very fortunate about. Um, I went right into it after high school. Then fast forward some time, I started out in the schools. That's primarily where I worked and done my practice. We ended up living in Montreal for a few years and we're moving back to the States. And so, you know, I was like, OT jobs, you can get those anywhere, I'll be fine. But we ended up moving up into the mountains up by Lake Tahoe in Truckee, California. And there were no in-person jobs. It was a small mountain town and the closest job was me driving down 7,000 feet down into Reno in the snow. If anyone's watching the news lately, they've been getting tons of snow. I did not want to do that. So I began to look at different options and a a former colleague that I had a lot of respect for was doing telepractice as an OT. And I told her, I said, "I, I don't know. I don't know about this. I don't think I want to do it. I don't think we can do it as OTs. And she said, give it a shot. And so I figured, hey, I I have no other choice at this moment. And so um, I joined a few different companies at that point, because back then everyone was 1099 independent contractors for telepractice and sort of began my journey. As you mentioned earlier, I I really hated it at first. And it it took some time to take my skills as an on-site therapist and really translate them into telepractice. And, And now I've been doing it for just over eight years So that's my journey
1: thus far. And I'm so excited to talk about your perspective. We have sister professions. You're an occupational therapist and We have an audience of speech language pathologists and SLPAs potentially, so we'd love to hear your perspective on all of this. And so let's kind of start with defining some of the terms that are used in the industry to describe the folks on the other side that are basically there to help us. So if you don't mind kind of sharing some of the terms that you'll be using throughout the podcast.
2: Depending on ways that you utilize telepractice, different companies, different people, a different terminology. So I think through what you might hear is just use a parent, right? They could be that person, facilitator care partner, assistant, paraprofessional, e-helper. There's so many different terms to just know that we might kind of toss those around as we're chatting and they all really mean the same thing, that other person on the other side of the computer that's helping whoever it is that you're directly working with.
1: Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. So today we are going to be discussing a multidisciplinary approach. Before we dive into the meat of the conversation, what does the term multidisciplinary mean exactly? Yeah, You know, this was a little
2: bit of a journey for me to kind of wrap my head around. So when we first talked about doing the podcast, I had sort of a vision in my head of what multidisciplinary meant. And then I started doing a little research and also talking to other professionals in different disciplines and everyone's perspective and definition of that term was a little bit different. So I figured, hey, I'm going on a speech podcast here. I need to look and see what Asha says. And there were, there were different criteria, you know, multidisciplinary is working separately and independently. I think often of when the schools, they have that like multidisciplinary report, right? Here's the template. Everyone does their part and throws it on and then presents it to the family. And then we have interdisciplinary teams too. And they're, you know, discussing and sharing perspectives to set goals and identify interventions and different priorities together yeah. as a team. And then there's transdisciplinary. And that really is blended professionals. And sometimes it seems like they be the boundaries of what people are doing a little bit different in transdisciplinary. So, as I was reading those definitions, I then realized that or read that ASHA really is, is shifting away, not away from some of those terms, but incorporating and following the World Health Organization, the WHO, and using two different terms. So, one is interprofessional education or IPE, and the other is interprofessional collaborative practice or IPP. So one is a little bit more focused on two or more professions learning from each other, from each other about different clientele they're working with. And then IPP is the the multiple service providers from different backgrounds, really giving that comprehensive care, whether it's a healthcare education that they're working, you know, depending on what area they're working in. So I feel like while we're using the term multidisciplinary today, I think IPP is more kind of where we're headed as we're talking about that too, which is, which is really exciting that like universally, everyone's going to be using the same language and not kind of having our own definitions anymore.
1: Love it. And we do love our alphabet soup. So I love to add to that. All right, so let's go ahead and start with some examples, personal examples of when you have used this approach in telepractice in your own career.
2: I really feel like to be successful in telepractice, you almost always have to use this approach. It really gives you such a great perspective of being able to see that client, that student, that patient, whoever you're working with and getting a much well-rounded picture of what they're doing. So by talking to other disciplines, being able to do that. So I've I've done it a few different ways. Several times I want to, you know, highlight working with SLPs that I've done like co-trading with SLPs and we were working at the same time with students we did make sure that we had it in the IEP so that we were covered and all those aspects as well, that, you know, everybody knew their co-trading was appropriate for the goals and everything we we're working on. So one instance was the SLP was actually on-site and I was via Tela and we were co-trading With preschool students. So, this is really fantastic for, I think, obvious reasons that we can provide so much support together when we're even in person being able to do this. But she was a fantastic facilitator eventually once we kind of get through it. But we were able to learn a lot from each other to help support the kids. I will say that it, it took some time. We had some bumps to kind of get in our groove. I was kind of new to telepractice. She was a little skeptical about telepractice too. And here we were trying to work with these students, some of them, you know, nonverbal students with autism. We really had to make that time to figure out how this was going to work. When we first started She kind of had the the expectation that it was my session because I was logging on to the computer. And so we had to have that conversation about, no, this is our session. We're working together. What is the goal of the session that we're going to be working on for this particular student? What are some activities that we can do that bridge not only from the OT perspective, but from the speech perspective as well? you know, if behaviors did arise as they do with preschoolers, she did take a little bit more of the physical lead and being able to help manage those with like timers or schedules or anything that needs to be done in the environment. But the unique part of that was I could almost take a step back from it because I wasn't physically there and being able to see it from a different perspective that we worked through a little bit better together in hindsight, where like after the session, there was a little boy that we used to work with and the first session he he came up and I came on the computer and he screamed and ran away. Like I was like, "Oh man, this is not going to work. This is not going to be a good session at all." And we had to very slowly introduce the computer to him. And you know, we she would be working with him and then I would come on and then we'd have to like move the computer closer and long story short, at the IEP, which was at, towards the end of the year, the parents came on and said, we, we just have to thank you. And I was like, okay. Like he used to be afraid of FaceTiming his grandparents and he used to see them on the screen and run away. But after doing teletherapy, he got really used to being on the screen. He was able to communicate better with his grandparents. So it was kind of like, obviously not an IEP goal, but it really worked out that situation. <laughs>
1: That's amazing. I love that. I love those stories where you have generalization and you didn't even intend to. So let's see, would any of this also be possible in a clinic setting? Because I know you did describe some basically ways to do it in the school setting, but what about in like an outpatient clinic setting, if you don't mind remarking about that?
2: No, absolutely. I think it's really the same principles, no matter where you you are. So first, when you say clinic setting, I'm going, okay, is one of the disciplines or one of the people in person is someone via tele? Are they both via teller, right? So how is that looking? What are the goals that we're working on for that student that you can, or for the, the client to make sure that you're collaborating together to prepare those sessions. But I think it can absolutely be done. I think in a clinic setting, there's potentially some more setup. That might need to be done. Thinking of my OT brain in a clinic, we have a lot of sensory equipment, different things that we're doing there. And so is the OT on site there and the SLPs tell it, like what, what is that really looking like? So being able to communicate and having a really set plan for not only what needs to be in the environment, but if behaviors of things get off track, how are you going to kind of handle that together as well? But I think it's a great opportunity to, to really do this
1: in any setting. Awesome. And then give us a little more detail about how it would work if. Both the SLP and let's say the OT were attending to the session via teletherapy.
2: That makes me immediately go to one of my favorite kiddos. He was a 14 year old student with downside. Um, he attended a charter school, um, but it, he was so far away from everything that he ended up doing like more like a homeschool virtual. Program and if he had been on campus, it would have been a life skills program that he was in. You know, when I inherited his goals, there were many functional life skills goals such as making a snack, doing some laundry. Things so so different than when we typically think of what we're doing um, in, in a school-based setting. He also had an AAC device that we were utilizing too. So again, the the SLP that was on his case was also the same company that I was with. So both via telepractice, we took a look at his goals, got it written into the IEP that one of our sessions a week would be co-treating, and then we each had a session a week that were one-on-one individual as well. But we got to do a lot of fun things together to be able to bring in that AAC device and have him improve his communication while also working on those functional things to increase his independence was really neat. We were very structured of how we operated together, so we met before each session. To go over things because we needed all the visuals for the AAC, like all those pieces to make sure that we were on the same page. And then immediately after each session, we met to say what went well, what didn't go so great, how can we improve next time? We also often, I wouldn't say weekly, but maybe monthly had a meeting with mom too to get her input of how things were going. One thing we had to be really cautious of was making sure we weren't bombarding the parent too much with both of our eyes coming in at the same time. So having that that communication afterwards with with the parent who was the facilitator at the time was really an important piece of that as well. And she helped us with the setup for everything that we needed for each session, which was really
1: great. So it sounds like a lot of consultation was utilized in, in this model. Do you mind kind of elaborating on that a little bit? Yeah. What I just kind of touched
2: upon was like that bombardment of the parent, the facilitator, the e-helper, whoever that is. I think Especially when you get two professionals together, you get a little excited. You can maybe use a little too much jargon and speak too much at them. And I try to always think when I'm consulting with someone, how is that making them feel? Like we're getting very used to being on the computer, talking this way, functioning this way, being in meetings this way, but not everybody has that experience. So if that e-helper, facilitator, parent is on the other end and we're giving them all this information how are they able to take? So all that being said is building that rapport first, identifying what's the best way for them to hear the information for that consultation. I think is really important. Is there one person who kind of takes the lead in that communication piece to help facilitate that? And then whenever I do a consult, regardless if it's the parent, the teacher, another healthcare professional, I follow up with an email Not every word, but here are the highlights, the recap of what we did. So if it was too much verbally, then we had that follow-up too to make sure that we're all on the same page. And I think that's really important with teleconsultations.
1: How can you tell if it was too much and it went over their head? Because I know oftentimes, at least in my experience, if somebody doesn't like something, they're usually, most people are not going to bring it up. So what are some some ways that you've kind of identified that maybe it was a little too much or maybe you were fortunate and the folks you worked with were very open about that? I don't know, but I I don't find that that is the case. (laughs) Every
2: time it was perfect. We never had any issues. (laughs) (laughs) SLP is probably more than anyone great at reading nonverbal cues, right? Like when you're looking at them and you don't have, you're not physically there, you actually maybe pick up on them more easily that you're seeing their face. I mean, I had some eye rolls at me that parents that I knew didn't want to be doing telepractice or trying to cut it short the yeah, 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 dismissive kind of attitude towards things. So how did we handle that case by case? I tried to make that, that rapport really established well first. So we feel comfortable. There's like a personal connection on some level while being professional, obviously, that the personal connection there with them. So you get that comfort level, being able to see how they're responding to what you're saying. And if you need to cut something short because you're identifying it's too much, then cut it short. Say, hey, let's just focus on this for the next session. Then we'll come back to this and being able to judge it, just like we would working with our clients. It's the same thing with working with that facilitator, that person on the other
1: end. Yeah, definitely, definitely have to be very patient. (laughs) Any examples or comments about working with behavioral therapy? I know it goes just kind of hand-in-hand speech and OT and behavioral therapy or ABA. Any experiences there?
2: Yeah, I, I did have... Again, in the school, it was a student who had, there was the RBT working with them. So that person was there 40 hours a week. Again, this, this student was in a homeschool virtual school program at the time to be able to receive that ABA with such intensity. That initial was really tricky because the turnover with the RBT as well. So I felt like we kind of would, again, build that rapport, kind of get in a good point, And then we'd have to take a few steps back. Once we got that consistent person in there, again, building that rapport and how we did that is I let them take the lead a little bit of like, what are you working on? How can I help you? So they really felt like I was being a support and not being the OT coming in, like judging because I they felt a little bit uncomfortable with, with how it was initially working. But once we identified, hey, here are the goals that I think that my OT eyes could help you with. How are you working on them? And then how we could kind of blend those together, including the parent in those as well. We became really successful. We even had sessions, again, because this was a school environment. There was a special education teacher who More or less was the case manager, the more direct because of the level of ADA the student was receiving, but we started to loop that teacher in as well. And so we'd all meet together while the RBT was working with the student or whatever, and then collaborate after while the kiddo was having a break or whatever was happening that we would then talk about different things that had come up in the past week, what mom was doing and really worked as a team together too. And even the SLP came into some of those too. So it really was that true like IEP team feeling of getting all the disciplines together to be able to help support that that child, that student.
1: I love how you are suggesting having the other professional take the lead as a way of even building that trust through the multidisciplinary approach Have you had situations where, because I know speech therapists, probably I'm speaking from my own lens here. We have times when working with a behavioral therapist, there's different approaches, right, to accomplishing the same goal. Do you have any examples of where you guys were working on the same goal and just the approaches were conflicting and and there was like a disagreement about that and how you kind of work through that? The biggest thing in thinking, in particular,
2: with with an ABA background, is the strict ABA discrete trial session versus here I come in with sensory processing, looking at all those sort of pieces, right? And and that that was tricky. I had to respect what they were doing, and they had a certain program that was being followed and written into an IEP. But there was also things that I was seeing as well. So what we did in that case is I met with the BCBA, right? This was not the RBT's, like she's following her rules on what she's supposed to be doing. So brought in the BCBA and we had a conversation about it. She was fantastic and really was able to see the OT lens as well and see the child through those sensory processing self-regulation needs. And so we we built in some of those things during the break times that the, the student had and there was even some like fidgets, different things that the child needed while attending and being able to do things. But it was really a blended model of respecting what they were trying to do while making small adjustments and being able to explain where my lens was coming from. I was fortunate that this, this BCDA was very open to that. I know I've heard stories that it's not quite like that. And it did take time. It wasn't an immediate, you know, it's baby steps with these things. And I think that's the biggest thing is like, don't expect it just magically happen. There has to be that professional trust, respect of where we're all coming from, from our different disciplines as well. But you learn so much. Like I love co-treating with SLPs because we learn so much from each other that you can carry over into other areas as well. When you're working with other clients.
1: Love it. Let's talk a little bit about benefits and limitations of a multidisciplinary approach in telepractice. Do you want to kind of start off with some of the benefits?
2: Yeah. ASHA did a survey and they had 95% of SLPs and audiologists reported that they had improved outcomes when they use this approach. So I thought that, I mean, that's a really high number. So again, they're reporting it, but they just thought that was fantastic. So really improved outcomes. That's And that's number one. What's what's better than that? You have different lenses supporting the child's needs, which I just touched upon. It's not just your OT or just your speech need. You're able to kind of bring in those other things and get a, maybe just a different perspective of, who, of the client that you're working with. I think you really become a much more well-rounded professional too, because you're learning so much from other people. You're developing that well-rounded program for the parent and the caregiver. And they're involved too, right? So there's buy-in from that, which I think is fantastic. So they're able to carry things out. And I also, what I was referring to that SLP that was on site and then I was Tella that you might see things differently because you're in different environments. So that's not necessarily like a multidisciplinary, but just that, that hybrid approach and multidisciplinary all at the same time. You really can bounce ideas off each other and be able to see different things because you're You have different lenses, you know, behaviorally, I could see things different. I wasn't involved with it. You can things different because she was in the environment and able to, you know, tell me what she was seeing too. So I think those are some some really good benefits.
1: Excellent. So what are some limitations of a multidisciplinary approach when you're working in
2: telepractice? I think number one is if you don't have that equal partnership, right? One person's taking the lead, doing all the planning, all dominating things, maybe in any given scenario. So really being able to make sure that you're all listening to each other and respecting the the different lenses that we're all coming from. You might not have buy-in from all team members. That again, happened with me initially with some of the onsite when I was tele is because they were reluctant about tele too. It it took a little more time for them to get that buy-in piece and also buy-in from families, that e-helper, that facilitator, whoever it is, are they able to really see the benefit of not only telepractice if you get them to buy in there, but now multiple disciplines coming in from telepractice too. So making sure that they feel supported and, and you have the buy-in there. Lack of communication. If you're not physically, you can't just go knock on somebody's door and say, hey, <laughs> can we talk about this or can we plan this? You know, how are you going to be able to make sure that you communicate with everybody having different styles and different schedules? Maybe you're in different time zones on top of it all too. When using this approach in telepractice, there's you need more time for preparation so that there is that extra added component to be able to do it and if you don't have that 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 becomes really challenging we talked about you know the people getting bombarded if you're giving consultation but also just them not understanding our different roles like are you the ot their slp i mean maybe that's a good thing that you're so collaborative that they don't even know but we do want to know who do they need to go to for specific questions and roles for things too making sure in the same page when giving recommendations as well is really important I have to say this because it is telepractice, just making sure HIPAA and FERPA is always, you know, depending on what setting you're in, that is is always covered in that payer source as well for those things. So that's that's another important, huge pieces and, and potential limitations on telepractice.
1: I'm curious, and I, I think we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but I am curious if you don't have prep time and you're not having great communication, what can you do? <laughs> I mean, that's good. Hard one, that's right? Good. Who has too much prep time, right? Like
2: that that doesn't happen. That's so individualized on people. I mean, I know people who are like, well, I'll just do it before or after or on my lunch break. I'd never tell somebody to do that and, and take away those things you know do you do you need to go to your manager or whoever it is and say I don't have the time to do this and do this effectively and can there be some maneuvering of your of your schedule to be able to to do those things. I also think using like Google Docs and Teams or you know SharePoint those things are great as well. So hey I'm gonna put my information in you're on you know I'm on the East Coast you're on the West Coast you can do it later and then you can kind of double check for things so you can kind of fit it into when it's available for you and figure out a way to be able to communicate together.
1: Yeah, definitely have to think outside the box. (laughs) So you've given us some examples of using a multidisciplinary approach. What are three key components of a multidisciplinary approach to telepractice?
2: Everything we've been talking about, one, communication, right? Interprofessional communication between team members, Patients, clients, families, communities, other healthcare professionals, depending on your setting, it can really be a variety of people. So, making sure that communication is strong, roles and responsibilities. And and when I think roles and responsibilities, it's not only just what are you doing, but making sure that you're holding true to your values and, and your professional ethics as well. And although we want to blend the lines, we don't cross them. I don't know if that's clear enough, but you know, like, yes, we want to incorporate things, but know that like, no, this is not my area. This is a speech area. I'm an OT or vice versa, whatever that may be. And then team and teamwork have to buy in of all team members to make sure that you, you could have conflict outside and have disagreements on how something might be approached, but figure that out for a path to move forward. So it's in the best interest of of whoever near your client or patient is on the other end.
1: And I'm wondering how can you kind of Stop yourself or check yourself so that you don't cross that boundary of of scope of practice while you're kind of incorporating these elements from each other's scope of practice. (laughs) That's a good question.
2: How would I do that? Part of it is maybe we have to call out or remind each other, right? So, like, hopefully, your teamwork and your collaboration is strong enough that if you were doing something as a K cream, like. this is kind of an OT area. Like I know we said this, but like I would want the team to be that strong to be able to to help facilitate that communication. Having that self awareness that when you're going into this to be aware, you know, to to know that there are lines, I think is an important piece of it.
1: Absolutely. Just
2: remind yourself of that going in. I think you'll have have that awareness there and then working as a team to navigate it.
1: And I also think if it's not something that you would probably be comfortable having, let's say a parent, a parent training piece or, or family parent piece, right? Those are things that you would be okay if a colleague shares, right? Because you're sharing it and you're wanting the the family members to continue to, to teach and and uh, facilitate. So yeah, that's great questions. So let's talk a little bit about the historical aspect of, of multidisciplinary approach. I'm kind of a history geek myself. So what are some of the earliest examples of a multidisciplinary approach in telepractice? I knew of some, but then I was like, I want to like when did this really first
2: start? It came up in a school meeting that I was in recently too. And so I did a little bit of research and there's an article in the Smithsonian Magazine going back to 1925. Like when you read, like, that's like a hundred years ago. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, Hugo burns back that he like basically predicted telemedicine. And if you look it up, he's got this like crazy contraption, almost like a bureau with a mirror on it. And he's got some like, you know, like the old rabbit school or rabbit schools, rabbit ears, antennas that used to be on TVs, like this whole contraption. You can see he's the doctor, and there's like a patient in the mirror. So that like he had this like vision of telemedicine and what it was going to be back in 1925. So I just I just thought that was that was really cool. But some of the earliest telemedicine that is kind of where we first started before we get over the therapy where was NASA. You know, 1960s, what were they doing? They were monitoring astronauts in space. From Earth, right? <laughs> like that's that's pretty cool. 1964, there was the, the National Institute for Mental Health in Nebraska. They used um, closed circuit TV links between itself and the state hospitals, like a like 100 miles away, or whatever it was, for education and consultations between people. In 1967, Boston had, and Mass General hospitals, one of the big hospitals there. They were having doctors go in via tele for patients who were at the airport who needed medical care that couldn't wait, couldn't get to the hospital. And it was a way to kind of bridge that gap. After that, one of the one of the coolest stories is, again, in Boston at Mass General is their burn center. And they're still doing this, to my knowledge. And they worked, so you had Mass General, the burn center and Spalding Rehab, which is where also a lot of the, from the Boston Marathon bombing, a lot of the patients went to Spalding. So when the burn victims ended up going for rehab, that's a lot of risk. Burn patients having to get, even in the ambulance and go back to the hospital, see the doctors, the doctors coming into the rehab and bringing who knows what into the burn unit. Like there's a lot of risk there. So they started doing everything via TELA to be able to bring that in. And so they they said that there was just such great collaboration between the doctors, the Atella, and the therapist being there, that it's still successful, that they're still able to do that that the, the patients really felt like the doctors were right right there giving them that live input and they felt like the, the care was really phenomenal. So that's like the earliest one that was really like all the disciplines were in there, you know, whatever therapy that the, the, the patient needed that was in that burn unit and then bringing the doctor into. I just think that's what a great way to do that. It's awesome. <laughs>
1: Amazing. What are some examples of a multidisciplinary approach for adults in either the clinic or medical-based models, basically? Do you have any comments on that? As we've talked about, most of my experience
2: is in pediatrics. So I know you have some in adults too, so definitely chime in here. I've done some in home health. And some in SNF too, especially in my career schools, you got to work in the SNF on weekends and summer breaks. When I think of other therapies and multidisciplinary, I think of OTPT speech, right? Like the, the the main ones. But the reality of adults in clinics, home health SNFs is that it's not just therapies, it's the greater medical professionals that we really need to make sure that we're Collaborating with when we're working with anybody of any age. So I think that's a, that's a really important thing to consider when you're doing this. I have not done tele for adults in clinics or anything. So really this is speculation for me, to be just very honest. But it's still the same principles. It's still communicating with other disciplines making sure that you're incorporating that, that you're all on the same page, that you're documenting where people can see it, even if you're not all all physically there. The other thing I think you can really consider is like a hybrid approach too. I know this is different if you're in different states and that's not physically feasible, but especially when I think home health, right? There are some things that are maybe not safe to do via tele-OTs. I'm thinking transfers into some bathtub showering. You're not going to have someone in the shower and putting that over The internet (laughs) speech, I would go to some swallowing things and you know I'll let you handle that one. But is is there some type of model? Are you close enough that you could maybe go in person for one session and the others are teller? Is that that blended model to be able to do to be able to help kind of bridge that gap for telepractice in that adult home health setting as well?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I do agree that we should in a medical model, particularly, I mean it it applies for adults and children, but I would think for adults especially. We do need to include the doctors and the medical team. And there might be like a little bit of a hesitation to contact the doctor's office. Sometimes there's just logistics of getting a hold of the doctor. You know, just personally contacting your own doctor sometimes can be difficult, but I do think it's important having that contact and also for the doctor to remain up to speed about the progress of what's going on. You know, perhaps depending on the insurance or medical group, okaying the orders that come through, very important. So we should definitely consider referrals to specialists and continuing to stay in touch with them, whether it's the ENT from a speech perspective too. Just to kind of comment on the teletherapy aspect of of what we can do, dysphagia for sure, that's something that I believe we could do a bedside swallow, but you would need to make sure or a clinical swallow assessment via teletherapy. But if there is a need for a video fluoroscopy or an MBSS or a fees, um, very important to make sure you refer out for that. And and even like maybe collaborating with a dietitian, it just all depends. I know typically a skilled nursing facility doesn't have teletherapy as an option. But once that individual returns back home for any purpose for rehabilitating, I guess they return back home, then we can kind of bring in some of these other specialists. When they're at a facility, it's a little bit easier, just like, you know, we were talking about with pediatrics, you know, if you're at a school, somehow all of these specialists might come together. But once a client or patient returns back home, then you're kind of at at the mercy of who's referring whom, <laughs> what your insurance is, but it's good to keep an open mind. You were talking about care partners and the hybrid approach and, and just keeping an open mind with all of this to see how you can make it work for your benefit. It's
2: like thinking inside the box and being being flexible and not getting stuck. and like, this is the only way this could be done, but how do we get creative? And like, in some of these cases, it's you either get creative or this person's not going to get any services at all, too. So what can you
1: do to help get them what they need? Exactly. And I've learned that it doesn't really matter if you're in a rural or urban location. Sometimes access can be limited in urban locations, too, if that individual doesn't have access to transportation or they have trouble with their technology. So it's it's a lot more complex than just a geographical location these days. So let's talk a little bit about diving a little bit more specifically into clients that might have behaviors during sessions. Would love to hear what you would recommend if a client has uh, specific behaviors during a session and they're not focusing on on their session for speech therapy. How can you help us as an OT to, to focus them?
2: The first thing I really think of is, would this behavior be happening if I was on site, right? So what does that mean? Are there, is the video quality poor? right? Is there some sort of environmental trigger that's happening um, that might be frustrating the client? Is the audio poor? Is the video poor? Is that, you know, setting them off, taking into consideration their age and functional level? Like, is that contributing? Did I make the activity that we're doing too high? Do I need to get them, make sure I'm getting off the computer? I'll go back to my preschoolers. There were behaviors that I was only going to be doing an activity on the screen, Their attention for the screen is, you know, minimal, unless it was Thomas the Train or whoever their favorite thing was off the screen and having things there for them to interact with was really important. So make sure you're taking into consideration their age and their functional level um, and what that might do. You know, what positive supports are you using? If, again, that that support person is working with them, are there some behavior signals you can kind of indicate to them? Even the, the client you're working with, if it's like, um, I'm thinking like a, a volume issue or they're speaking at a turn, uh, you know, are there cues? Like if I pull in my ear, you're giving in that signal. So you're not having to interrupt them or, you know, touching your throat, whatever the signal is to help them sort of regulate their own behaviors too. Again, depending on that functional, uh, the age and functional level of the person you're working with. I really think about behavioral momentum. Did I start off too hard? This was just too hard. And so they were frustrated and the behavior came out. Start simple and then grade it to a little bit more difficult, right? Just like we would in person. Reward system. What is that for that kiddo, adult, whatever? They all need breaks. They want to chat about, you know, whatever they did in this weekend or, you know, whatever that is. Little Thomas video again for the little ones, but making sure that reward system is built in. I do find that telepractice can be really intense because you're you're here versus being on site and kind of in a larger environment. So I think we're or break times and reward times might be for some need to be a little more frequent too. So to to consider that when you're working schedules, there are some kids that we can have a visual schedule written up, even adults, right? Here's what we're doing today. (laughs) You know, we're going to do blah, blah, blah. So they kind of know how long it's going to be what preparation is. Can you have it on the screen? Do you need visual pictures? Do you need something off the screen? Right. Do I send it ahead of time? So they had that schedule and they know what to expect timers, many visual timers that you can use to be able to you know use zoom or whatever is the facilitator working with them have a timer on their phone that you need to use so there's more a physical one there too, iPhones or whatever everywhere now. and then also our behaviors making sure that you're incorporating their interests to gain gain their attention to whatever you're doing so that the environment t- doesn't take over from them. to go back a little bit to the environmental triggers, Again, this is where that multidisciplinary approach will be really great for speech therapists too, is I know that you guys know like working with OTs and stuff, the basics look at, they need something to fidget with, they need little something to wiggle, you know, whatever that is, but really taking a step back even after the session, and what was going on? Was the room dark? Ask the person aside. Is the room cold? Like, what might do they just move before they sat down, or were they already sitting and now this is an extended period again? So really finding out what's going on in their environment that you might not be aware of because you just popped on a screen. So figuring out all those pieces, and then you can help support them. There are many times where I was planning on starting a session, maybe seated, and then I found out the person had been seated doing something else, just came from another class or whatever. And it's like, all right flip the schedule around, let's get up and move, do these things, and then we'll come back and sit down. And that really does help with the behaviors as well.
1: That's great to know. Any comments about how to structure the activity so it's clear and how they should participate?
2: So are you thinking more so like if we're in like an SLP and an OT?
1: Yeah, like how would you assign roles? So let me just kind of clarify, like assign roles so that it's clear participates and how to make the activity more successful?
2: Yeah. I mean, depending on the activity, I think some of that has to be done beforehand. Being able to figure out, okay, here's like the portion you're going to take. I I think about my SLP that we were both via tele and working with the student with the AAC device too. Like when we first started out, we were talking over each other. It was confusing. We didn't know who's doing what, but you know, we went with, it was her therapy room that we're using. So she had all of the visuals and everything. Her role. Then, when we got to a certain part, that was the the actual activity. He was making a snack. Then I did more of the speaking, and then she came back. So really, knowing whose whose roles were there, so that the child understood, helped his behavior be a lot better because we weren't talking over each other and things like that. That was really helpful. And then for kids, when you're structuring that activity, making sure that you're using different models. So as we know, or in adults, people have different learning preferences. So do we need a physical model? Do we need that visual model? Do we need auditory? What works best? And probably all of them, right? So you're really getting across what the expectation is for the person on the other side so that they can be set up for success.
1: Awesome. And then how about consistency? What should we consider when it comes to consistency of, of behaviors, whether it's your behavior or your roles within these sessions, if that makes
2: sense? I mean, you always try to be as consistent as possible, right? Especially when something's working. So I think you try to be and, and don't and walk away. Like we tried a schedule, it didn't work. There was still behavior. So forget that. I'm not going to do it again. But really making sure if you if you start with that schedule and there's, you know, even on a PowerPoint and you have like this is what it's going to do, the adult, the patient, the kiddo, whoever it is, will get used to that being like, I'm going to walk in and I'm going to get the schedule. Now being said, if you show a schedule. Every single time and every time you get into behavior, the person screams and runs away. Well, maybe we need to like start with something else first before we introduce that schedule, but trying to be consistent so they know what's expected and what's coming and they're not thrown off by that.
1: Yeah, definitely agree with that. So let's talk about some resources, some specific resources that you can we can utilize in treatment sessions. Asha really has a lot. And I know sometimes the website can be a little tricky to navigate
2: and there's a lot going on there, but there are a lot of good, good resources there. There's one that the the IPP, there's a, there's a case rubric, which it's really fantastic. So it's a document and we'll give you guys a handout after this, that you can have a link to it, but there's a document that the whole team can use. And it goes over like, here's the assessment plan. You know, what, what is everyone looking at? What are their goals? And it is just in like a PDF format. But I wanted to share with everybody because I love it to be able to take. And again, like we were talking about before, put on that google doc like make it your own who are all the providers for this client what are the goals everybody's working on what are your session times and days so everybody's aware that working with the same um same client on there so i I just thought that rubric was so awesome to be able to get everybody on the same page and have those key pieces then you just take it have to modify it for tele because you're not gonna be able to physically write on it together that's easy you know and, and modify it to see fit um, there's also a great IPE checklist for the education piece as you're trying to um, learn yourself of how to learn from others and making sure you're kind of checking all those boxes. Some other like resources for treatment sessions is for those of you working with adults. There can be many of the same home exercise programs like MedBridge, whatever it is that you're utilizing that you would have in person, how do you you know, get those, download them, email them after the session, screen share them during sessions so you're still able to utilize um, those. For, for pediatrics, I have a couple that I really love. Um, News ELA, I don't know if you've ever seen that website. I used to thought it was called Newzella, but then a the teacher said News ELA, and I'm like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. So <laughs> But it's all like current topics and news that you can do. So you can put in like the kiddo's grade or wherever their reading level is at. So this is for adults. And it brings up like current events that are happening. And you can use that for any discipline for activities or different things for, um, for a treatment session. So I thought that was cool. And there's another one called Mind Momo. Um, and it's a, uh, like a web that you can do to like pre-writing activities. You can type in there and save it. So again, thinking about some of my students, SLP might be working on some writing language activities, the teacher might, I might, so you could all share that website with the student to be able to kind of work on the same goal or same project that the students already working on for class too. Um, so I really love those kind of web-based things that everyone can collaborate on the, on the same piece and be able to bring it in. Um, And then also, as we talked about Google and Microsoft, is there anything better than getting on like the same document? Like, hey, we're going to do this session. Let's get a PowerPoint together. You do these slides. I'll do that slides. We can screen share them. And here's our session all all planned out. So I think those are all really great things they can use um, during treatment sessions.
1: Love it. And while we're at it, let's talk about some strategies uh, an SLP can use in treatment with a client or patient who is not receiving services from another discipline. So um, I mean, as much as we want to you know hope that we're we have access to all of these services, um, again, I think the big differentiator here is if you're in some building or facility that already has access to these disciplines, there's a, a higher chance that you'll be able to collaborate with your um, other disciplines. But in cases where um, the family is maybe working or getting the access of uh, these services, they're they're basically connecting from home, and for whatever reason, they would need to go through hoops to get these additional services, and maybe there's some barriers to why would they they wouldn't get it right away. So let's talk about in those cases, would um, would we be able to as SLPS do some basic strategies to help the clients focus when there's no access to these professionals at least immediately? Just curious.
2: Yeah, you know when you when you're saying focus and stuff, it kind of goes back to that behavior piece. That's where my brain brain goes. So um, as we talked about before, those treatment breaks, right? Telepractice is intense. Like sometimes just breaking up the session a little bit more. Like you wanted to get X done, but that didn't work out. Let's bring it down to here, um, and you might have a little more success. Uh, the use of that timer, I think, is huge um, for everybody. And again, adults, kids, whatever, whoever you're working with, that schedule. It's funny, I'm going for in-person PT for myself right now for my shoulder. And he, even when I start, goes over our schedule for the day and like what to expect. And I was like, oh, look at that. So really adults and kids can really benefit from that. That during those breaks, that reward time or activity to loop back again to thinking about, okay, I've been having them sit. Do I need to give them a sitting activity or do we need to get up and move? Would that be better to then bring their attention back to to whatever the next task is? Um, Letting them hold something. Right? There's no wrong with nothing wrong with like you have something that you want to be able to fidget with or um, a preferred uh, preferred item that they want to be able to to bring to the session that then just helps them be able to to focus. Sometimes I even just have play doh in my hand when I'm in a longer meeting. <laughs> I'm an OT, I play my play doh around, um, so that's good. Those environmental influences that we talked about, you know, lights sounds the space that they're in is there a different room that maybe their attention might be better in as well this is a little off topic but i had to tell a story so i was working with a student um, who has adhd and they logged on from the car (laughs) this was the first and the parents had set up the computer right in the middle console and two little siblings, so like he was maybe in first grade, two little younger siblings were on either side of him <laughs> and he couldn't focus at all. I mean, this is a pretty obvious space issue, but he couldn't focus at all. i heard the parents kind of arguing in the front because the microphone was picking up that. And it was like, there was no way we were getting anything done. So I canceled the session. But really be considerate of what is going on in that space. Are they able to focus on an environment? Is that going to be a good session? No, let's let's reschedule and, and do this again. It's going to be more of um, therapeutic benefit. And just reminding people, you don't have to sit at the computer just because it's teletherapy, right? Not everything needs to be on the screen. Bring items in, get them up, moving around, Bring the if it's okay, bring the laptop on the ground and get them moving on the ground. Um, I just think that's really important to not feel like you're tied to the table and the screen.
1: I find that that's like one of the number one myths that I can't seem to um, get people to get over. They assume that it has to be uh, some kind of interaction over the screen. But let's talk a little bit about some ways to kind of uh, bridge the gap and help clients that do need these services. Um, what are some ways to initiate services from other disciplines if if you feel like there's a need for that?
2: Yeah, I mean, part of this is knowing your referral source, right? That Or that, pay, sorry, another referral source, the payer source I meant to say. So what can you refer to as well? Um, again, school setting. What are the rules and everything there? Uh, health insurance. What are you doing there? Uh, cash pay. What are the what is the client willing to pay for? Right. So I have to keep all of those things in mind. I've also been really appreciative, regardless of the setting that I've been in. Whoever you know, if it's an SLP wanting to refer over, they talk to me first. That that referral doesn't just show up. But you do that quick consultation of hey. I had this kiddo, or this client, this adult that I'm working with. This is what I'm seeing. Would they be an appropriate referral to coming over to you? And I think that just helps push things a little bit too. Picking up the phone, um, you know, do you know another SLP in the area that you can give, you know, very basic information of? I have a client that's showing these kind of things. Would a speech referral be appropriate? And then you can dive into that area. But I think those are really pieces. Get that collaboration. Cause sometimes before you make that referral, it ends up just being a quick consultation, right? Of like, hey, you know what? Try this and this and get back to me and say, oh, you know what, that worked. It wasn't the referral I needed. This actually was all I needed it was a quick consult and move on. Again, being careful of HIPAA for all those things that you're that you're functioning within. There actually, I just saw on LinkedIn this week, there's a new directory called OT Potential Directory. Have you it, like I just saw on LinkedIn, so, so it's pretty quick, Clicked on it. They have, and I think this is great for SLPs who are looking for OTs. You can go to this website and you can click that you need what state you need them in, what their area, like their specialty is, and if they do telehealth and if they're accepting clients. So what a great way if you're doing outpatient or your own private practice, and you don't have that built up referral source, if you're in another state doing tele, that you could go to this directory and be able to potentially find an OT in that area to be able to collaborate with and refer out to. I just thought that was pretty cool and just came
1: across this week. Let's talk a little bit about how to address clients in general. Any specifics as to when we're Referring to our clients, do we use the person first language or identity first language?
2: Well, like a great topic and a hot topic at the same time, too, right? This is sort of the United States in general now. I think with everything, but when when I when I watch and I hear um, and listening to how people are debating, you know, I guess I'll call it an issue. Um, this topic: is it person first? Is it identity first? I think you have to go to the client, go to the family, and say. How do you want to be addressed? Um, it's not always just about what our views are, but making sure that, that we're really respecting how they want to be addressed. And that's that's a really important piece. I think it's a, a really good, a good question you brought up.
1: Thank you. And also just wanted to uh get your opinion on what would be best practice when a client seems to need the help of another discipline. There's no actual progress on speech. So how would we address that scenario?
2: I think similar to like we talked about before, um. If, Collaborating And getting that opinion first and making sure it's a, a good referral. Um, but I also suggest like pausing for a moment, right? So um, has there really been no progress? Like, I think, you know, you're working with somebody and sometimes you're like, there's been no progress, and then you go back to your notes, and you are like, oh, actually, they made a lot of progress. So really looking at that, looking at your data, your session notes, and your goals. Um, you know, if you need to, I've done it myself, like there was no progress because the goal wasn't appropriate. Do I need to readjust something to then get them to that next level and address that uh, original goal a little bit later too? And then finding out, you know, if, if there are other goals that need to be addressed, are those within the scope of practice of speech of OT or whoever's doing it? And then trying to be able to find that, that referral, um, referral out. Um, I think that if, if you're doing TELA. And it's in a state that you're not physically located in and you know, know that area, it's also part of our responsibility is to to get to know the referral sources in that area too, so that you can become part of that community and you're not so far removed. Because in outpatient, that's huge, right? When a family comes in and they need a referral to X, Y, or Z, you want to be able to give them something or point them in the right direction. If you know you're living in Alabama and your clients are in Wisconsin, you, you, it's our professional responsibility to get to know that area a little bit more to really make sure that we're doing best by that client, in my opinion.
1: Absolutely. What do we do? I mean, there is this tendency to want to keep clients on if they have particular diagnoses. Um, What comes to mind is, is the ASD diagnoses. It it tends to kind of come with the territory that we want to kind of keep them on for the long-term but I think it's important to ask ourselves. You know, again, it kind of depends on if if you're in more of a medical setting versus um, educational setting. But even so, I think it's important to ask. You know, is there progress being made? Is there any medical need for this service? Is it really going to uh, make any significant improvement from this point forward? Do they really need our services or not? So I think those are important questions to ask ourselves. Let's kind of uh, wind down with one last question here and then we'll turn to the audience. Um, I'm really curious, how would you address challenges with another professional um, that you're supposed to be collaborating with? So I know we kind of touched on this a little bit, but for example, let's say a a professional you're supposed to be collaborating with uh, shows up to the session a bit unprepared and there's lack of communication. What are some things you might do to help in that situation?
2: Yeah. I know we talked a little bit about this before, but it's the worst, right? Like, I mean, I think we all hold ourselves to a high professional standard. And so we expect everybody else to. And so that's, that's really hard to come into that situation where you're, you're coming in, you're trying to repair and do this. And then the other person, you don't feel like is pulling, pulling their weight. If it's a one-off thing, like sometimes I'm the benefit of the doubt. Like we're all allowed to have off days, like nobody's perfect. So allow that maybe a one-time pass thing. If it becomes a pattern, I think that's when you do have to address it. Um and, and that might be handled differently depending on your relationship with that other professional. You know, are you in the same company, right? Is it a different company? Is it, you know, in terms of an employer standpoint, you might have to navigate those things a little bit differently. Um, have you worked together before? Or is this a new working relationship? You know, have you guys, if there's like a co-treatment type um environment, Have they done that before? Do you just need to set up some time to kind of address it and navigate those roles of like, hey, what were you thinking? What did you like about this session? What did you not like about this session? And see if you can kind of come to an agreement um, with it. You know, I've done things where like, uh, again, after the session, we might meet and be like, hey, I thought this went really well. This didn't go so well. What do you think? Given that that time to share as well. Hey, next time I think I'm, I want to try this, what do you think about that? And so you're getting that buy-in um, if there's something you want them to do, like, Hey, this might be better if we meet beforehand so we can prep and come up with a the schedule. Can we get that into our schedule and kind of making, taking the lead in that communication
1: to help figure out whatever it was that
2: was missing to be able to help move it forward.
1: Definitely. Let's take a question or two from the audience now. Um, so we do have a question about funding. How is funding accomplished when when co-treating, more so in clinic treatment than schools? I don't know if you have any comments on that. I know that's a little
2: complicated. I don't want to say too much that because the payer sources and health insurance state by state and everybody can be so different. Um, I would just make sure that you're, you're checking with that payer source first before you do anything. That being said, let's say that the, the payer source, the insurance says, no, you can't co-treat. You can still use this approach, right? Like you can still collaborate outside of talk about what's going on in your sessions, ways to incorporate things from another discipline potentially into your session, help with behavior strategies, whatever it is. So don't shy away from the communication collaboration piece if you're, you know, had the same client that you're working on, even if you can't directly do the session together.
1: Yeah, it is a bit complex. Um, there are companies that uh, do behavioral therapy that are perfectly. Okay, their funding sources are completely different. They're perfectly okay with being present um, in a person's home while the speech therapist maybe does the teletherapy. So it just all depends on the company and you may need help to try to find out the answer to that as far as the referral sources. Um, second question here had to do with um wanting the names of the resources in the chat, which I have copied. Um, and paste it here, but we will have that in the handout as well. Um, another question here. Okay, so it looks like this might be a technical question. They're having trouble downloading the handout. So we will definitely make sure that they are able to do that after this podcast. So uh, no worries there. So I think with that, we'll kind of wrap it up here. Thank you so much, uh, Trisha, for Uh, For being here today, we truly appreciate your research, education, and expertise you provided about exploring a multidisciplinary team approach via telepractice. Um, As a reminder, if your state license requires CEUs, be sure to complete all course modules, including the ones that say quiz before the end of today on your speechtherapypd.com account. And then please be sure to join us for our next episode in this series as well. We will be discussing uh, exploring telepractice around the globe, international considerations. All right, have a great evening. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for tonight's course.
0: To complete the course, you must log into your account and complete the quiz and the survey. If you have indicated that you're a part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete mailing address in your account profile, prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Please note that if this information is missing, we cannot submit to ASHA on your behalf. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you next time. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word SLP learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit SpeechTherapyPD.com and start earning Asha CEUs today.